Welcome to Transforming Faith, where we talk frankly about what needs to change in us, in the church, and in the world, even as we follow and worship a God who doesn't change. I am Ed Black, your host of Transforming Faith. One of the beauties of being the body of Christ is we get to worship with and learn from people of all different backgrounds and life experiences. It is my honor today to welcome one of Forest Lake's members, Dr. John Hudgens. Dr. Hudgens graduated from Newberry with a Bachelor of Science in Education in 1960 and went on to earn a master's degree from Clemson in 1964. John entered the world of teaching directly out of college at Orangeburg High School and quickly became an elementary school principal. Dr. Hudgens served as secondary principal at four high schools and in that time earned an advanced degree in education administration and a doctorate in education administration from USC. In 1999, he was named president of Newberry College, his alma mater, until July of 2000 and would return as interim president from January to March of 2010. He has served his community as chair of the education division and a trustee for the United Way. Dr. Hudgens was on the board of directors at the Northeast Area Chamber of Commerce, a board member of Columbia Area Junior Achievement, and a trustee of Cities and Schools Columbia. He's also spent time as president of the Orangeburg Lions Club, the Dentsville North Trenum Lions Club, and the Forest Acres Rotary Club. And he has served God in many, many ways as a disciple of Christ and member of Forest Lake Presbyterian. John, welcome. Good to be here. We are glad you're here. Tell us about your upbringing and what led you to go into education. I was raised in a little small town in Lynchburg, and a lot of people want to say Lynchburg, Virginia, but it's Lynchburg, South Carolina. I graduated in uh, 1956 in a class of 11 students. I finished uh, salutatorian in that class, and I'm proud of that. When I was principal at Spring Valley and speaking to the senior class, I told them I was number finished high school, I was number two in my class. When you're telling that to 900, it sounds a little better than when you tell them there was only 11 in the class. But I had a good education. I had the same teacher, the same English teacher, the same math teacher, the same science teacher for all four years. Those teachers didn't change. They taught everybody. High school, very, very small high school. And they did a lot for you. They probably inspired you to think about becoming a teacher yourself. Well, I always was uh, interested in being a coach. I was, uh, my high school coaches in, at Lynchburg were, were Newberry people. And uh, my American Legion coach, and later when I was allowed to play football with Bishopville, all those were Newberry people. So I wanted to be a football coach, and I went to Newberry. You need to be a teacher. And um, I majored in math, and I ended up taking a job as a math teacher and a football coach. I am from South Carolina. I've lived in this state almost 41 years, and I have never had the pleasure of visiting Lynchburg, South Carolina. Tell me where that is. Well, Lynchburg is on Highway 76, about halfway between Florence and Sumter. Uh, there's a Maysville, Timmonsville, Olana, uh, even South Lynchburg, and Wysocki. And people ask me where I'm from, and I'll say Lynchburg, and they'll ask where it is. And I say, well, you're close to Wysocki and Olana. Well, they still don't know where it is, but it's just a little small town, and uh, my daddy was a, a farmer and an educator and probably the most educated person in that community. So we're talking a suburb of the metro- metropolis of Wasaki and a suburb of the metropolis of Timmonsville. Yeah, right. Yeah. You graduated from Newberry in 1960. You immediately went into teaching. 
tell us about some of those early experiences in the classroom, John. Well, I, uh, I would say my, I told a t- I caught there. I went to, I went, I had jobs, had job offers in three different school districts and, and went to uh, Orangeburg because when I got back to Newberry College after going down and visiting, they sent me a little check for my expenses. And I thought, well, if they're going to take care of the little things, they'll take care of the big things. And so I decided to go to Orangeburg and uh, I went to Orangeburg as a math teacher and a football coach and a bus driver and a JV basketball coach and later became a baseball coach when we added and in 1960 I made the grand sum of $4,800. $300 of that was because I was a man. And you got to move to the metropolis of Orangeburg. I got to move from Orangeburg, right. It was a, a good transition to Orangeburg and uh, later married in Orangeburg, yes. So I know you're a sports guy. You know Roy Williams kind of had a similar path in the sense that he graduated from college and then went to uh, Black Mountain High School, and pretty much did everything you did. Like well, did it, drove the bus, yeah. taught, coached, yeah. and he actually sold magazines too. Well, I I, uh, I used to measure land when I was at Newberry in the summer for the federal government for agricultural things, and uh, when I got to Orangeburg, they gave me a job uh, teaching in summer school. So once my first teaching experience was right out of Newberry that summer teaching math in summer school. Um, and then I was fortunate to get a grant from the National Science, Science, National Science Foundation to go to Clemson, and they paid for me to get a master's degree What Clemson. What made you want to do math? Was there a uh, wonderful teacher in your I think probably my math. My daddy was the math teacher, and uh, math was sort of easy to me. Uh, spelling and that kind of stuff wasn't quite as easy, but uh, I was uh, fortunate to have some skill in the math area. Yeah. I know you grew up loving sports. And when you weren't named football coach early on in the mid-60s, I know that was a setback for you because you had wanted to be uh, football coach. I wanted to be the football coach. We'd been successful as football program when I was there as assistant. And we didn't have then, they didn't have all these coaches. It was me and Jeb Roniger was the head coach. And then we had a JV coach and an assistant JV coach of four of us. And uh, Coach Roniger decided to go into another area for his livelihood and uh, I was finishing up my master's at Clemson in 1965 and I thought sure they were going to offer me that job. It was a low point in my life because that's what I wanted to do but uh, I look back on that and realize that uh, probably the best favor anybody ever did for me was not giving me the head football coach job at Orangeburg. I think the Lord had other plans for John Hudgens than to be a football coach. Well this was right around the time your dad the mathematician in your family, this is right around the time he died. He died in 64. I would have completed my master's in 64, but I stayed home to be with my mother uh, during that summer. And so I finished up in 65. So this really was a hard point for you. Probably the first professional disappointment you had in a career full of achievements. It was an early on professional disappointment. No question. No question. You know, I'm backing up a little bit, but um, when Martha and I got married, uh, our plan was, and I don't think I've ever told this publicly much, but our plan was that she was going to teach and I was going to law school. And uh, she got pregnant right after we got married, and then she had to give up her teaching job because you couldn't teach then when you were when you were pregnant. And so that sort of got the law degree out of the way, and then the not getting the football job sort of got that out of the way. 
Uh, and then I ended up doing a lot of other things. But I think the Lord had a plan for John Hudgens, and hopefully I followed that plan. Well, looking back on that now, you probably can see that plan, but I imagine at the time it tested that oh, faith. If, if I, I was embarrassed, uh, I didn't want to go to church. Uh, I almost took a job in North Carolina out of spite because they didn't give me that job. But uh, I didn't, and it worked out well. So then you graduate from Clemson. You're hired at the elementary school, and then you did something that probably got a lot of people talking in that community. You hired the first African-American teacher at that elementary school. I did, and that was uh, uh, interesting, an interesting thing. And I've told this story several times. Uh, I had a, a teacher, uh, a white teacher, come to me in the summer after this had been in the paper. And uh, she was concerned about the fact that the little elementary school didn't have but one female facility. And uh, she wanted to know if it would be all right for her to go home to use the bathroom. And, of course, I denied that. I probably had been a little more mature. I might have dismissed her. But uh, I probably couldn't have gotten away with doing that at that point. But that was just the way it was in, in the 60s. And I would imagine she later looked back in life and realized that that was, that would, was a I bold statement so, and a bold she, move by the principal at that time. I and hope the, so. She, she didn't fight me on it. And, because uh, you know, she was probably old enough to be my mother at that point. Uh, and she was from the Baptist church and all that. And there was a lot of things going on then. But we had a great superintendent in uh, Bill Clark, a wonderful guy. And uh, he did a lot for me professionally and uh, helped me in a lot of ways. And he was backing me all the way. So was Bill Clark somebody you looked up to that sort of was the, the mentor for you in those early years after your dad died? Yeah, Bill Clark did not give me the did give me the football job, and at that point I wasn't his buddy. But uh, he looked out for me. Six months after I didn't get the uh, job as a football coach, I was named an elementary principal. And then uh, shortly after that, in 1967, that's still – Seven years out of college, I was named principal of Orangeburg High School. And then tell and, us what happened to one of your students. Well, we had, you know, in 1967, then the, the, what is known as the Orangeburg Massacre took place in 1968. And one of our students was one of the Smith-Hamilton-Middleton kids that was killed in, the, in what is known as the Orangeburg, uh, Orangeburg Massacre. That was some, some tough times, and, uh, but we kept school in order. We never dismissed school. We didn't have uh, just a few African-American kids, primarily on what was then known as freedom of choice, where, where kids had a choice to either go to Orangeburg High or to Wilkinson High. And we had, uh, I think, 11 African-American kids, very bright kids, who came to Orangeburg High. And to my knowledge, none of the white kids chose to go to Wilkinson. So coming from Lynchburg, you... This was a culture shock for you, what happened in 1968 in Orangeburg. Like, this was, this was a big, big setback for that community. It was a, it was a real transition. Uh, but again, I give Bill Clark credit for being strong and uh, well-respected in the community. But my first uh, experience, Ed, with uh, realizing something wasn't right in the world, I think, was when I went to Bishopville uh, to register for the draft. And uh, I'm standing in the lobby of the uh, courthouse in Bishopville, which is the county seat. And uh, there's a, about 20 of us and uh, probably more African-Americans than white. And there's a water fountain that says white only. And uh, I realized, well, something's wrong with that. But uh, 
I didn't raise the stink. I didn't get a flag and march up and down the street. I knew it wasn't right, but I was a coward in a sense and did nothing. Well, you were registering. You probably were intimidated to say anything. Well, I don't know whether I was or not, but uh, somebody said something to me one time later. There was a guy from South Carolina State back to Orangeburg, and, and he said there's not much difference between leading the parade and being run out of town. It's just how far out in front you want to be. And I think if I had done some more radical things than I did, I might have been run out of town rather than leading the parade. But you were at times leading that parade in that community, that Orangeburg community, because, so tell me if I'm wrong here, John, the decision was made to somewhat split the high school community. So they went ninth and 10th grade at they, they put When at we Wilkinson. put it together, we, put, uh, we started off, uh, Ed, it was freedom of choice, and then the freedom of choice didn't do what the courts wanted. We were under desegregation orders. And then the next step was to draw a line and say everybody on this side of the town goes to Wilkinson, everybody on that side goes to Orangeburg High, and, uh, you know, it was no racial thing in it, just where you lived, where you went. Well, uh, people falsified where they lived. Uh, I had one guy that uh, was a politician, what I won't name, who had a big plantation house out on 301, and he rented a trailer and claimed that's where he was living. And, of course, we weren't supposed to follow people home. As long as you got your mail there, that's where you were living. And he kept his kids in public school. And then we, Orangeburg, formed two private schools, Willington and Wade Hampton, at that point in time. And, uh, but, but we managed to have, have several good years under that situation. And then finally the court said, no, that's not working, so we're going to have to put the two high schools together. And we started that in the summer of 1971, and we had then named Orangeburg Wilkinson High School. And I was named the principal of the 11th and 12th grade campus, which was on the white campus. And uh, Chester Ray, Chester Ray was named principal of the um, Wilkinson campus, which was now the 9th and 10th grade. Was there collaboration between the two campuses much? Well, yeah, we, uh, we did a lot of work trying to get the two together. We had dual everythings. Wilkinson selected a student body president, and we selected one, so we had dual everything. And uh, I left Orangeburg in 72, and ironically, I'm going back uh, Saturday week to a reunion of the class of 72. That was my last year as principal at Orangeburg High School, and uh, looking forward to seeing some of those, uh, some of those kids. But it was, a, it was a tough transition. We had some help from the DSEG Center at the University of South Carolina. Uh, but it was, uh, I think one of my experiences there was that uh, we were meeting at a, uh, well, probably all-white Methodist church on Saturday, and we were having all these meetings trying to get the colors. We had to change the colors. We had to change the alma mater. We had to change the mascot and all that stuff. They had been Wolverines. We had been Indians. Uh, we had, they were now Bruins. And... Uh, it was interesting, after several Saturday meetings, I get a call from the pastor, and he says, uh, John says, we're not going to be able to let y'all meet here anymore. And I said, well, what's the problem? And he says, um, I think he falsified, but he says, our custodians uh, don't want to come in here and clean up after y'all leave. Well, we weren't making any, any mess. That wasn't the truth. The truth was uh, we weren't welcome, and that's a shame, but we weren't. Uh, I had the experience of uh, the big Baptist church had uh, used to have what was called a baccalauric sermon. 
And uh, now again, Bill Clark, a wonderful guy. And uh, so I told him I was going to write a letter and ask to have the baccalaureate sermon. Well, uh, we denied, almost split up the Baptist church because <laughs> we had some employees that were working there. And so I did that the first year. The second year, I wrote the letter again, again with Bill Clark's blessing. And again, I get denied. And the interesting thing about the story is that uh, the Baptist church eventually asked the Furman Choir to come and sing. And they did not understand that when the buses rolled up with the, same, with the Furman Choir that there were African Americans in it. And so the African American Furman Choir integrated the Baptist church. Uh, it's a shame. Uh, Eric, I, I ride up and down Polo a lot now, and there's a sign in front of the um, Episcopal Church out there that says, All are welcome. And now, if you grew up when I grew up in South Carolina, that sign would never have been there in the 60s. Were you ever discouraged being in this environment because you had you have a love for teaching you have a love for being in the classroom but so much of what you were having to do was manage things externally outside pressures and influences did you think about ever giving it up and doing another career almost went into insurance business i was offered a state farm agency in orangeburg i come home from work one day and uh, martha's upset and what's the problem? The problem is that our next-door family, next-door day family, which was very close to us, had a child the same age as Johnny, had decided they were going to put their kids in private school. And uh, the social aspect of the kids going to private school sort of is just something I couldn't do. I couldn't be an educator in Orangeburg and put my kids in private school. And, uh, but it was heartbreaking to see friendships that uh, broke up over that, but, but they did, but they, uh, they healed. Uh, I'm a member of the Methodist Church in Orangeburg then, and uh, I recall the, um, the bishop had been appointed and was an African-American guy, and we were having, they called it revivals then, we've sort of changed the name of that now, but um, we got a letter, I was on the board at, at Orangeburg uh, Methodist Church, and uh, we got a letter from the bishop, and he wanted to know if he would be welcome to come to the revival, not to speak, but just to come. And uh, it was a big discussion, and uh, we had some people who left the church over because we did accept his invitation to ask him to come. But earlier in that, we had had a meeting and, and, uh, about ushering blacks, and the uh, decision was made that we would not usher blacks in. And... Uh, I had no courage. I had a courage enough to say, well, I won't usher, but I didn't have enough courage to say it's wrong, we ought to do this, uh, and people don't understand that today, but that was the culture in that time, uh, how you can say, and goes to justification that people would give, well, they're not coming for the right reason. Well, how in the heck do we know what reason anybody's coming for? Um, I used to go to Baptist prayer meeting on Wednesday night because a little girl was there that I wanted to sit by, but I went for the wrong reason. Whatever gets went. you in the church, John, <laughs> whatever gets you there. So then you moved to Columbia. I and moved then to Columbia you're, 72. you've grown your family after years. You, your family's growing a little bit, yeah. and you moved to Spring Valley High School mm -hmm. right when it opened. Right. Yeah, I want to back up just a minute and tell you one other little story that I think uh, it's. Uh, 
I'm a principal of Orangeburg High School, and uh, some kids come to me, and uh, they say, Mr. Hudgens, it was Mr. Hudgens then, there's some, it was some white kids, and I said, you got some kids that have armbands with Confederate armbands, and they got flags, and they're going to wave them in the assembly. Well, I knew that wasn't going to work, and so I called off the assembly and said there will be no armbands on this campus. Uh, if you've got an armband on, you can either go home or take it off, but you can't stay. And most everybody stayed, took the armbands off. And then shortly after that was after the what had been known that we talked about earlier, the Orangeburg Massacre. And uh, so we had African-American kids come with black armbands, um, sympathy for the kids that had been killed, which I thought was fine. But I didn't have long before I had kids in the office saying, you said there would be no armbands. And so I made the same announcement. There will be no armbands on this campus. If you want to wear the armband, you got to go home. If you take it off, you can stay. Had Most of them took it off as they did the other thing. But then uh, the superintendent called me a couple of days later and says, uh, John, uh, the NAACP wants to meet with us. And so on a Sunday afternoon in the cafeteria at Orangeburg High School, John Hudgens now in the, in the late 20s is fixing to meet with a group of people who aren't happy. And, uh, and there's I'm, about 100 people in yeah, there, right? Yeah, it was a room full. And, um, of course, it didn't last long. You know, I, I leave the house and tell Martha, we, we may be moving. You know, this may be the end of us. But we get there, and I tell you, Bill Clark was a wonderful guy, and he stood up, and and after they introduced him, and he says, I'm going to ask Mr. Hudgens to tell the story. And I told the story about the Confederate and that. And uh, this gentleman sitting in the back of the room, an elderly gentleman, black gentleman, he stood up, and I'll never forget his words. He says, it sounds like to me the boy did the right thing. Let's go home. And he did. And uh, I know that in that day and time, you would not have referred to an African-American as a boy. But he referred to me as a boy, and I think he meant it in a positive way. And, uh, but it was a, an experience I'll probably always remember. And you were fine with being called a boy because you, you, you got to keep your job. You're going home, I'm going. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Get to keep that uh, job. And then it, I, moved to, I moved to Spring Valley. I never applied for that job. Uh, and you took a massive pay raise from what oh, I understand. I, I was making about 11 and I got... Um, million, I'm assuming. 11,000. Yeah, 11, oh. <laughs> Not a month, a year in Orangeburg. And then um, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I didn't apply for that job. But because we had not... A lot of schools had had dismissals. They couldn't keep kids in school. They had fights and all that stuff, and we avoided that. We had some good help, and we had some good uh, conferences with kids, and we learned that uh, I think early on that you have to get the kids to agree to a process. And once they agree to the process, then they'll agree to what comes out of the process. But if you just wait and have an election and then the wrong people don't get elected, then everybody's up in arms. But when you do it through a process that everybody says, this is a fair process and whatever happens, we'll live with it. We learned that, I think, and we were able to keep kids in school both at Spring Valley and at uh, Orangeburg-Wilkinson because people understood we were trying to be, trying to be fair. But uh, it was some it was some tough times, and uh, we had uh, 
a student that came from one of the high schools in District 1, and uh, she was a big lady, an African-American lady, and she made the statement, I have closed down Dreher High School, and I'm going to close down Spring Valley. But she didn't, and that was because we had some, some kids who understood that that wasn't the answer to the, to the problem. Tell us about how your faith has changed over the years from a boy on a farm in Lynchburg, moves in the education system, you're highly educated, your dad dies, you have an initial professional setback, you then have several challenging experiences in your 20s. How has your faith evolved over, over your career in life? I, I think um, there's probably five times in my life that God has said something to me. Uh, and I can get real emotional telling you about them. But uh, at the first time, the, the situation in Orangeburg about the coach, I think God interfered with me there. I really think God put Martha on this earth for me. And uh, I'm fortunate to, to have fallen in love with her and her with me. And we had 58 years, and it was good. I wish we could have had 50 more, but we didn't. Uh, if I knew tomorrow I could be with her in heaven, I'd go. But I can't. But... Uh, hopefully I will be at, at some point in time. But I think my faith has been very simple in that uh, my dad was the mayor of the town. He was a Sunday school leader. He taught the men Bible class. And uh, he, I never heard my daddy say anything negative about anybody. And uh, that's hard to find people that hadn't done that. Uh, so I, I think my faith has always been there that, that – uh, that God had a plan, and sometimes you don't know that what that plan is, and it's sort of hard to accept uh, some of the negative things. You know, I wasn't a football coach. I wasn't a lawyer, uh, and I ended up having an opportunity to serve the Lord in a lot of ways through, uh, through well, starting with coaching, but certainly through being a principal and a superintendent and a teacher and a, having the opportunity to be a college president. All that has been a great thing for me. Did you ever ask yourself at times, John, where is God in this? Well, I think I've always known he was there. I don't know whether I've told you this story or not, but uh, when Martha was placed at the Blake, and I give Ellen credit for telling me that it was time that she had to go somewhere, and uh, she's at the Blake, and if you knew Martha, uh, she was a different person. She tore up things, and this just was not the person that, that I had known. And so they called me from the Blake one day, they want me to come out there to meet, and I go to meet, and... Uh, they have a lawyer with them, and they hand me a letter, and they say, we're going to give you 30 days to get Martha out of here. You can't keep her. Um, you didn't tell us all this stuff. Well, the truth was I didn't meet with the lady that was in charge then. I met with the, lady, the, the man that had been in charge that had left, and I told them everything they wanted to know that I could tell them. But, uh, so my answer was to them, uh, well, what, what am I to do? And they said, well, you need to take her to... Uh, Kershaw, they got a unit to Kershaw Hospital. So, and I, that was not going to work. And now you may have heard this story, but then I leave there and I'm coming to see Ellen. And I pull up in the parking lot and the car that pulls up next to me is Dr. Ash Cribs. Now that can be a coincidence, but I don't believe it. And uh, he and I talked a while and then Ellen got involved and then he says, I will get Blake to keep her. I will start on some new medication, I'll take her over as a patient, and we will start low and go high rather than start high and try to come low. And he was able to keep her there for another few months before she died. And I, you know, talking about God's intervention, uh, 
You can always say all of these things are just coincident, but to me, they're not. Well, and then you have now counseled other people about your experiences during the, the last years of Martha's life, and you took some encouragement and some prodding from others in this church, in this community, and then now you've in turn done that for other people. Well, I hope so. It's tough when you have to take somebody and put them somewhere. Uh, it's just a tough situation, and uh, a lot of people are doing that, and I see people at uh, where I am now at the Wildwood Downs. There are men taking care of women and women taking care of men, and uh, I was had dinner um, Monday night with a, a group, uh, and uh, five people, two men and three women, all of us have had successful marriages, and Somehow it came up, and uh, somebody asked me, said, well, how long were you married? And I said, 58 years. That was the smallest number of the five at the table. And I thought, marriages don't last like that now. I mean, those were commitments that were made that people understood, and it was for better or worse. And uh, some people are going through worse, but they're managing it. And for all of those things that you went through in Orangeburg, you and Martha went through, you were both right by each other's side through those many challenges. Yeah. Martha was wonderful. Martha really wanted to be a wife and a mother, and uh, that's what she was able to do. She taught for a few years, and once we got our kids educated, she stayed home, and we had a wonderful life. We had a lot of wonderful trips together. If you could give any advice to those who question where Jesus is now when they see the news or they feel the anger that is all around us, what would you say, John? I would say that God has promised us at the end to end, everything's going to be all right. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. And uh, I just feel like that we've been promised for eternal life. And, uh, you know, it's almost like if I could tell you that uh, your sports team, that end to end, you're going to win state championship, then that's what we're going to do. We're going to win state championships. So the practice of the bad three-day practices, the hard times, the bitter disappointments uh, pale in comparison that in the end we're going to win. And I believe that. And uh, hopefully I can get other people to understand that in the end you're going to win. You're going to have eternal life. And uh, I've just been so fortunate in many ways. And that's not that I don't feel sorry for myself at some time. But uh, I got a lot to be thankful for. I had a wonderful mother and father. I got a good brother. I got a good family. And uh, I got two children here in Columbia close by, and I'm just so, so fortunate uh, compared to so many other people. And sometimes um, Martha probably was a big fact. Martha couldn't enjoy a lot of the things that we had because she didn't think, why did we have them and other people didn't have them? And that sometimes it's hard to get over, and I feel like that about where I am now. I mean... Where I am now, we're very fortunate to be there, and uh, it's a very homogeneous group. Uh, people have been successful in a lot of different ways that they couldn't afford to be there. But then why am I there and other people are pushing carts and uh, doing all kind of things? That's a question we all wrestle with, or at least should wrestle with, mm -hmm. as a disciple of Christ. Well, I wrestle with it, and I think Martha wrestled with it more than I did uh, she couldn't enjoy a lot of the benefits. She shouldn't enjoy somebody coming in and cleaning the house because, you know, why do we have somebody cleaning the house when I could clean the house, you know? But uh, it is what it is, and if you just remember that God got a plan for you, 
and I think he had a lot of plans for me, and I don't know what, what plan he's got now, but uh, I'm ready when he's ready. As you've heard many times in the pulpit, said by, by Ellen, the news is good. Yeah. Long term, yeah, our country has gone through some bad times, and we got some bad times now, but uh, we're going to get through this. Uh, I know I got some friends. I don't talk politics with people anymore because I feel pretty strongly and they feel pretty strongly and I'm not going to convince them and they're not going to convince me, so no need to talk about it. Well, I know you love to talk about sports and good luck to your Red Sox now that it's baseball season. Well, they, they won last night, thank goodness, but they've had some, some tough times. We had a team 5-2 to two going into the bottom of the ninth and we lose. Huh. Well, good thing about baseball is you, about a ha you have about 140 more games. <laughs> That's exactly right. The Yankees, the dreaded Yankees are winning all theirs and we're losing all ours, but that will change. Plenty of time to turn it yeah. around. John, thank you for your time today. Well, thank you for doing this. This has been Transforming Faith, the podcast produced by Forest Lake Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. If you have comments, questions for us, or suggestions, please contact us at contactus at flpc.org. Until next time, we wish you God's peace.